We are again um, in our season after Epiphany, or we can just call it Epiphany, sermon series called Listen. Uh, I say every week that, that this journey that we're on uh, through the letter of 1 Corinthians ends uh, back in the gospel story where God announces about Jesus. He says, this is my son, listen to him. And so knowing where we're going, every week we come on in and we're invited to hear um, what the Apostle Paul has been writing to a church in Corinth and, and, and how he's inviting them to listen to the gospel, to listen to the message of, of Jesus, the announcement that Jesus is king. Um, and so we're going to continue on that for a few more weeks. Um, this morning as we get started, uh, I want to talk about um, a toy that I wanted as a kid and I never got. Did you ever have one of those things that you really, really wanted and it sticks with you? And for whatever reason, you never ended up... So for me, it was a Rambo squirt gun. Um, I know, pretty awesome, right? So when I was probably five or six years old, uh, I saw the commercial for this Rambo. You know, Rambo Sylvester Stallone, the the army hero guy, right? I I hadn't seen the movies yet. I just, you know, you see the image, the cartoon of the the guy with no sleeves and the headband with that thing sticking off to the side, and he looks tough, and he's, you know, all... Whatever, and he's got this bazooka, right? I, they made a bazooka squirt gun that was mechanized. You put batteries in it, and you pull the trigger, and it was like squirt. I, I don't think it did a great job, but in the era that I grew up, like the early, mid-80s, they got really good at marketing kind of garbagey things to kids really well. So I thought it was the most amazing thing ever, and my parents obviously saw that it wasn't worth the money because it was really expensive for back in the day. Because a squirt gun with a motor just seemed a bit excessive. I actually looked it up this week on eBay. There's one for sale for $600. So I almost called my mom and said, hey, uh, we could have made a killing on this. But I probably would have broke it at some point a long time ago. But for me, like, I wanted the squirt gun because that was the tool that Rambo, who I assumed was a hero, used, right? Like this, this bazooka, I've seen the image, the commercial of him taking out the bad guys, saving the day using this bazooka thing. And so as a kid, I wanted the bazooka because that was kind of a heroic thing. Or maybe a, another example, and this is something I did end up with, my favorite baseball player um, was a second baseman for the Chicago Cubs named Ryan Sandberg. Anybody ever hear Ryan Sandberg? Yeah. Uh, he was my hero. That's who I wanted to be growing up. And so when I got old enough to buy my own baseball glove, there was only one option for me. The Rawlings Ryan Sandberg edition glove. And I had that all through high school. That was a glove I played with all through high school because he was a gold glove winner. He was an MVP. He was a, a perennial all-star. He was the guy. He was my hero growing up just an hour south of Chicago, uh, watching Cubs games on WGN, uh, I wanted to be Ryan Sandberg, so I wanted his glove because that was the tool that made him successful. You know what I mean? Like he was Rawlings, that was the brand that made the glove, and the model and the style, and it had his name on it. And even as a, as a kid, whether it be the Rambo thing or the, the baseball glove, like my hero, I wanted to be as much not just like them, but I wanted to use the things that they used, the tools that were in their toolbox, the things that they found made them successful. I, I wanted those things. And so uh, I, I know I'm probably not the only one who, who has experienced things where they put a celebrity name on something and, and kind of portray it out. I mean, that's kind of the marketing move these days. 
Um, can you think of anything that is like celebrity branded that like the appeal is more the celebrity than the item itself? Feel free to holler out if you think of anything. Anything? No? What's that? Rachel Ray? What does she do? Is it cookingware stuff? Yeah, I don't know. Dog food? Okay. Pots and pans. I think I've, saw, I've seen the Rachel Ray pots and pans. Uh, the first thing that popped in my mind was the George Foreman grill. Like, here's a boxer selling a grill, but, like, people buy it because it's George Foreman. You think of anything else? Perfumes that, yeah, celebrities. Like, it has nothing to do with them, but their name's on it, so you, you think that. I heard something over this way. Roger Federer? Yeah, so, what, tennis stuff, or what does he, what does he pedal? He hasn't, he hasn't won anything, but he's still a celebrity, and he's still out selling. Okay, I get that. Uh, a big one, I, I, I think, Tabitha, was it, you said this week, Michael Jordan? Was, which one did you say when I was picking up? What's that? Air Jordans. I want to be like Mike. Is there any more thing, more 90s-ish than wanting to be like Mike? Like, there was a song about being like Michael Jordan, which meant you had to pay for his $100 shoes and drink his, his, his sports drink, right? Um, Nolan Ryan? What's what's affiliated with Nolan Ryan? Right, but did he have something that like I, I don't know his name associated with a product? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, basically all the all the baseball and yeah, kind of became a face. What's that? Tony Hawk. That's a perfect one, right? Like. <laughs> Well, uh, another one, I just thought of this because you mentioned Tony Hawk, but Shaq, right? He's, he's selling car insurance and Icy Hot and you guys know Shaquille O'Neal, right? Like, you know, he sells everything and everything. Um, but the, the point is we, we have this, this sense of the thing that, that is connected with this person who is successful or the thing that they used or the thing that they believe in or the thing that's connected with them is going to be somehow beneficial to us if we are connected to that too, and, and I bring this up, and I'm talking about all this, because what we're doing here this morning is we're going to go into a scripture text in which the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, as much as that baseball glove was to Ryan Sandberg, as much as that squirt gun was to Rambo, the cross is to Jesus. And so he, he's saying you cannot have a Jesus without the cross. Okay, And that's the... The power of God, in which we'll get to in a minute, but he says the power of God is revealed in the cross. That's where it happens. Right? So let's take a look, before I give away everything I already want to say backwards, <coughs> start at the end of the sermon. Uh, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along that way. Um, there's some pews scattered throughout, as, or pews, Bibles scattered throughout if you want to use that route too. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. 
But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, Pray with me, if you will. Uh, Wondrous Spirit, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So this week, if you're paying, we're here last week and you're kind of keeping track of where the the scriptures landed and where we are, this is a continuation uh, from last week. We pick up right where we left off. Um, And if you remember last week and if you weren't here, I know uh, weather and all that stuff kind of keeps some folks away, but... We talked about how Corinth, where this church was located, was a city that was shaped by a culture of wisdom. There was an influence there about about wisdom being kind of the the thing that uh, created celebrities in their day, though the wisest. There was there's debates and all these types of things based off of who could use the best rhetorical tools and skills to 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 come across as the wisest person. Uh, leaders were followed and celebrated for their ability to use those rhetorical skills, their ability to win debates. And it wasn't even on a basis of truth. It wasn't that, oh, you said the most true thing, but rather by being the most impressive or being the most charismatic, by having the most powerful rhetorical skill. And the church in Corinth was divided, was experiencing conflict because the people in that church were choosing their leaders based off of that. They were choosing to follow different people based off of who was, you know, uh, the most impressive. One chose to follow the Apostle Paul. Another chose to follow Apollos because they baptized him. And there was others that followed um, Peter, right? There was division and conflict rather than being united (coughs) through their faith and their fidelity and their allegiance to Jesus alone. They were making allegiances to other leaders besides Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth that the answer to their problem of being a church filled with conflict was to be united by their faith in the crucified Christ. That was the answer. The problem was we have, we have people aligning with all these different factions and groups, and what we need is to be united behind the crucified Christ. And last week, this message focused on the, the Christ part of that, the crucified Christ. We need to focus on following Jesus, worship Jesus, honor Jesus alone because he alone saves, he alone heals, only Jesus redeems. 
Now this week we're going to focus on the crucified part of that message. The crucified Christ. Last week I mentioned in the lectionary, you know, we talked that we follow the lectionary, which is a, a, a plan of uh, scripture readings that aligns with the church year and kind of gives some structure to what we're doing, and that we follow it pretty, pretty closely throughout the year. It's a, a prescribed plan that takes us through the church year and a grand narrative of scripture. If you follow the lectionary, you, you hear a story that takes an entire year to tell. But something unique happens this week as we follow the lectionary text. Something that doesn't happen very often. It happens every once in a while. Last week, our scripture text was 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. This week, our scripture text is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. These brilliant biblical scholars, these amazing uh, students of the Bible and theologians and teachers that had put together this grand plan, it's really complex and it's really amazing. And the longer I, as a pastor, I follow the lectionary, the more impressed I am and the more I see it as a formative tool. This great, these people that wrote these things put together this great plan, uh, repeated a verse. Uh, they accidentally, maybe, did they, they, they put la- the verse from last week, they that ends last week, they started this week's with it. Um, yeah, go ahead and put it on the screen. Uh, the first verse that we read this morning, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those <coughs> who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. They repeated this verse two weeks in a row. They ended last week with it and started this week with it. I mean, maybe it was just a typo. Maybe it was a copy and paste error. Um, maybe they editing error maybe they didn't mean to do that or maybe like it's so important that we need to hear it two weeks in a row and that's the way I lean I don't think it was an error I think it was it was something that these authors of this lectionary these people that put this this grand plan together said this is really really important we need to we need to not lose sight of this and it begins by this phrase it says for the message of the cross And when I was starting to prepare this week's sermon, that's as far as I got before God really started wrestling with me about what I needed to say today. Uh, For the message of the cross, because what stopped me was that the cross has a message. As much as I was going into these 12 verses or 13 verses or whatever it was, trying to figure out what the message was, the Apostle Paul starts out by saying, the cross has a message. I thought, well, we should probably start there. Right? My message is probably not as important of what the message of the cross was. The cross has a message. Now the cross, and many of you know this, was a very unique form of execution in uh, Jesus' day. Um, it wasn't just to end one's life. There was probably easier ways, quicker ways, less involved ways to kill somebody. But it was done in a way to be the most shameful the most brutal, the most degrading way possible, right? It was intentionally long. It was intentionally embarrassing. It was intentionally shameful. They used this method not for everybody who committed you know, serious crimes, but for people who were political or religious agitators, a certain type of criminal. Um, the Roman Empire would use it against pirates who violated kind of rules on the open waters, They would use it to to crucify uh, slaves or those who had no civil rights. 
And what you, what you need to get is that, that it takes a certain type of person to even qualify to be crucified. Um, m- many of us wouldn't, in our, in our citizenship that we have, in our state that we're in right now, we wouldn't qualify. We're too high of status to enter in. So if you saw somebody hanging on a cross, you knew that person was the lowest of the low. They're barely a human Right? And by hanging him up in front for all to see, it was, it was meant to be shameful and say, this is barely a person. Citizens of Rome were not to experience crucifixion. In fact, they, they, they wouldn't even talk about it in, in society. Like It was impolite, it was rude, it was dirty to talk about. Crucifixion was like the most shameful thing that you could think of. It was intended to punish, but to humiliate those in society who were deemed the lowest and the worst. It was also intended to be a deterrent. If you saw somebody being crucified and the suffering and the, the pain and all of that that went into it, um, it was supposed to capture your imagination and say, well, I don't want to do what that person did, right? It's meant to be a deterrent. The brutality, the shame, um, even just the manner in which you, the people die was meant to make people think twice before committing crimes against Rome or to form any type of rebellion or any type of resistance or whatever against those in power. So, so maybe the message of the cross could be, well, if you do what this guy did, you will end up where he did. Right? I think that's what, what one of the messages maybe the, the Romans wanted people to think when they saw the cross. The message of the cross was like, if you do what he does, you'll end up where he is. I think that's maybe a message of the cross. If you follow this guy, you will follow him to the same end. Or maybe the message of the cross is tied to the fact that it was common practice to put a name or a title above that one being crucified, identifying who they are. The gospel accounts tell us that when Jesus was crucified, they put a sign next to him that said, King of the Jews. So maybe the message of the cross is that Jesus is king. Maybe that's what's being announced. Here's our king. Now, that would seem to be a pretty foolish message at this point based off of everything I just said about how shameful and derogatory and brutal the cross is because a poor, beaten, humiliated, convicted criminal dying a slow death can't be anyone's king. There's no power there. He's not ruling anything, not even his, his own life. He can't control anything. How can he wield any power or be any type of authority if he's hanging on this cross, slowly having life drawn out of him? He'd been arrested, beaten, and nailed to a cross. To say, this guy's your king, would be a pretty foolish claim at that point, would it not? From the outside looking in, the message of the cross seems to be that Rome has the power, right? That's what's being announced here. Rome has the power, and if you upset those in power with power, they will use that to do whatever they want to you. That's the message of the cross when you're outside looking in. That Rome had so much power they could do whatever they wanted to you, and you couldn't stop them. They wanted you to know where power lied. The message looks like from the outside looking in, seeing a man being crucified after being beaten and all of that, the message looks to be Rome is in charge. That's what they're trying to say through this, right? 
Here comes somebody along the way that's, that's challenged things. They've kind of upset in the temple, upset the religious things, have some political implications, got some people rallied up, stirred up. And the message of the cross is Rome is in charge. But these Christians in the church in Corinth heard a different message from the cross. Maybe that's what Rome was trying to say when they nailed Jesus to the cross. But these Christians, they heard something else when they looked at the cross. They looked at the cross of Jesus and understood it as victory. As God's redemptive work that is saving the world. These Christians understood the message of the cross as being lifted up and glorified as king. The message of the cross for these early Christians was Jesus overcoming the world. And as the Apostle Paul says, those who have experienced that salvation, those who have experienced that healing, those who have experienced that redemption, see this as God's wisdom. This is God's power at work. They see Jesus crucified, beaten, nailed to the cross, and they say that's God's power at work in the world. Now people on the outside who hadn't been saved, who don't understand what's going on here, said, man, Rome is in charge. But the Christians who had faith in Jesus, they saw it and said, this is victory. To those still living as citizens in the kingdom of the world, to those who hadn't experienced the healing, the salvation of Jesus, the gospel announcement that Jesus is king, that announcement that this is victory, that God is at work in this cross, would be the most foolish thing ever. I mean, how can you look at that and say, this is God winning the great battle? We just read the first little part of verse 18, and the Apostle Paul spends the next 11 verses or so uh, building on this idea. And we could, co- we could spend a great deal of time talking about how the wisdom of the world is, is foolishness, and, and God's foolishness is wisdom. Like you can read through that, and <coughs> it's, it's, there's a lot there, and it's a lot of big words, and it's a pretty, pretty heavy argument. Um, But those 11 verses are simply trying to argue one point. And that one point is that the message of the cross can only be understood properly by those who are experiencing salvation through Jesus. If you're on the outside looking in, if you've not experienced that redemption, if you don't have that that healing, if you don't have that trust, if you don't have the spirit working inside of you, the cross looks like Rome is in charge. Even the most impressive worldly wisdom cannot comprehend the cross as the power of God at work. Does that make sense? Outside of the faith in Jesus, outside of understanding what God is up to in here, even the wisest person cannot, even the most uh, amazing person with worldly filter cannot look at this and say, oh, I understand what's going on. God's winning something here. It's only if you understand what God is up to that you can say this isn't a loss, that this is a victory. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says the power and wisdom of God is revealed in the cross of Jesus. They look at this this beaten and broken man nailed to a cross and they say, that's God's power. That's God's wisdom being worked out into the world. That's God's power being manifested into flesh and into tangible things. This is what God's power looks like at work, looking at the crucified Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says, to the world, this is just foolishness. How can you look at that and say, oh, God's at work? But those who have experienced it, those who have received it as grace, those who have been healed and redeemed by it, 
you understand how God is at work in this. And so the church, whether it was the church in Corinth or the church today here in Bout Creek or anywhere around the world, is going to be faithful to what it's called to be and to do. If it's going to be faithful to its mission, the church must not only be aware of the cross, but the church must be shaped by the cross. As a church, we aren't spectators of Jesus. We're not fans or admirers of this Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. In Jesus, if you are familiar with his teachings in the gospel, he repeatedly taught his followers that to follow him meant they had to be willing to pick up their cross daily and follow him. Again, keep in mind everything I just said about what the cross represented from a worldly perspective. First off, to even be crucified, you had to be the lowest of the low. You had to be viewed by society as the the most unworthy people in the society. So to pick up your cross daily already is is an announcement that you're going to have to humble yourself, empty yourself, and then follow him Picking up our cross is the centerpiece of following Jesus because it was the centerpiece of what Jesus was all about. There is no Christianity, there is no church without Jesus going to the cross. The significance of the cross is is illustrated when Jesus, um, he taught his disciples. He said, to be considered a child of our Father in heaven, you have to be refusing You have to be willing to refuse to retaliate and rather love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For this is the example that Jesus set when he refused to use his power to defend himself, choosing instead to die for his enemies rather than to crush them. Along the same line, the cross is a prominent theme in all of Jesus' teachings that speak for the need of people to lose their life in order to find it, must die in order to live, You must let go in order to receive. And that association uh, connects greatness with humility, innocence with serving others. And so Jesus takes the common understanding of power, (coughs) wisdom, strength, might, success, control, and he turns it on its head by associating it with willingness to sacrificially serve others. And so what I want you to get your mind around this morning is that the cross was not merely something God did for us. It was an example that God calls his disciples to follow. Right? The cross was not just something that Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago in a place far away that most of us will never, never be at. It wasn't something that he did in order that we could go do something else. But rather, he did it and called us to experience the cross as well, pick up our cross and follow him. It's an example of the way of God. And it's exactly in our willingness to walk with Jesus to the cross that we experience the power of God. Again, where does the Apostle Paul say, the power of God, the wisdom of God is revealed. It's in the cross. The power of God is revealed in the cross of Jesus. And so a faith that avoids or ignores the cross misses the very place in which the new life of God can be found. The cross is how God heals and saves. And that seems foolish because it certainly looks like how the world 
destroys and kills. When you look at the cross, when you look at an image of Jesus, when you look at what it means to be emptied and beaten and nailed, it certainly looks like defeat. But the Apostle Paul says this is victory. There's a certain temptation attempting to distort Christianity, and it's been since the beginning. This is nothing new. <coughs> it shows up in different ways throughout time, but there's a, a, a temptation that, that is trying to shape Christianity into something other than what Jesus intended it to be. This temptation, this distortion, tries its hardest to avoid the cross. The power of God, the salvation of God, is revealed not in a crucified Jesus, but in worldly success. God's power, some will claim, is revealed in comfort, in status, in wealth, and worldly power. When I achieve these things, when I have these things, when I experience these things, that is evidence that God is working my life. And if I lack those things, if I don't have those things, it means God isn't at work in those areas of my life. You can see how this is a, a, a tragic distortion. It's not just wrong, but it's, 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 a dis, it's a disruption of everything that the Apostle Paul is telling this church in Corinth. God's power is revealed in the cross, but there's this, this temptation to say, no, it's God, like, we see God at work when things go my way, right? Like, if I get the promotion, then I say, oh, God's blessing me. If I get, if I get demoted, let go, then it's like, oh, I, I don't know where God is in this, right? It's, it's real easy to fall into. Then we, we start seeing our own comfort, our status as evidence that God is at work in my life, and in the areas where things aren't how we would want them to be, we're like, well, I don't know where God is in this. And at its ultimate extreme, it becomes a type of prosperity-driven Christianity that cannot comprehend the crosses of victory. It cannot look at a crucifixion and say, this is God at work. It cannot look at the crucifixion of Jesus and say, this is power. It cannot look at the crucifixion of Jesus and say this is salvation or healing. God can't be at work in this. A, a prosperity type Christianity would say Jesus died on that cross and suffered along the way so we don't have to experience anything like that. But that's not what Jesus or the Apostle Paul taught about the cross. <coughs> they weren't telling people to look for the places in their lives that everything was growing peachy and that's where God is at work. You'll find God's power revealed in the best, most wonderful things in your life. They weren't teaching people to put their hope in comfort or status or worldly success. In fact, Jesus and the Apostle Paul were, were trying to show us, to give us eyes to see, to reveal the power of God, the work of God at work right where we are. In the situation we are experiencing right now. Because the, 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 the dark side of the prosperity type Christianity is that in order to get where God wants you to be, you have to be something other than where you're at right now. But what the Apostle Paul and, the, and Jesus is saying is God is at work even in the suffering, even in the difficulty, even in the thing that is taking me down, that is emptying me, that is hurting. The, the, the Apostle Paul and Jesus try to tell us, you don't have to get more money, more power, a better status in society, a better reputation in order to see God at work in your life. That's not God's project. The power of God is revealed. The work of God is made evident in the cross of Jesus. 
And if at this point you were wondering, what does this mean for us today? Like, this is a very theologically heavy message, very conceptual. You might be thinking, well, this is all nice, but what does it look like in our lives? And I spent some time trying to answer that question, because I love to have something tangible, some application. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that this week, and I ended up back in the gospel reading that I read a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 5. This is uh, that text that I read a few moments ago is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is preaching out kind of his kingdom ethic uh, to, a, to a group. And he starts out this sermon with these what we call beatitudes, these blessings, pronouncements that God is at work in certain places. So let's take a look at that Matthew scripture again because I, I couldn't find a way to say it better than what Jesus said it. So what does this look like in our lives today? What does it look like? Uh, what does Jesus say about God being present and at work in the situations where the world would say God is absent? Right? I don't know if you've ever had those conversations with people that maybe don't have a faith or, or, or skeptical of, of Christianity or whatever, but like, well, if God is, is faithful, if God is good, why did so-and-so get sick? Why did this bad thing happen? Right? I'm sure you've had these, these types of conversations. Maybe you've had these questions themselves. So you're like, well, bad things are happening. Obviously, God is absent. And, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount begins by saying, no, 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 that's not how God works. God's work in the world, the power of God is revealed in the cross. It's revealed in the lowest and the suffering. And so he says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In another place in the gospel, it just says, blessed are the poor. Um, two different ways of interpreting this, this text, but it, it can be either. It can be those who materially don't have anything, or those who are just crushed by the world, the poor in spirit, those who are beaten down, feeling the weight of things. You're poor in spirit. Jesus says, well, that's God's at work there. Um, in fact, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's God's authority. That's God reigning and ruling right there in their midst. Blessed are those who mourn. God is at work right there in the midst of those who are grieving loss because they are going to be comforted by God himself. Blessed are the meek. Those that the world would look at and say, ah, you don't have much to you. There's not a whole lot of power. There's not a whole lot of strength there. There's not a whole lot of anything there. Jesus says, those are the ones that are going to inherit everything. That's, those are the, the ones that are victorious. Those who are going to receive all these others that are fighting for everything. The meek that are sitting on the sideline, hoping not to get crushed. God shows up, and they inherit everything. Next, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled those who are desiring, longing, who are feeling absent from it, those who, who need it, they will be filled with everything they need. God has not forgotten or abandoned them. God is at work even in the midst of their needs. Blessed are the merciful. Those who show grace to others will receive it themselves because God is at work. You do not have to fight for your own whatever because God will reciprocate, will reward mercy with mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, being Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. When in, in Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount by saying when you think things are the lowest, when you're mourning a loss, when you feel like the world is too big, too strong, when you're poor in spirit, when you're meek and you're, you've been wronged, you think everything's going wrong, Jesus comes along and says, that's when you're blessed. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't say go make yourself poor, or go make yourself grieve. But in these moments where the world would say, oh, that's weakness, that's brokenness, that's everything gone wrong, you've lost the power of God, the wisdom of God, is the cross. That's where God is at work in these very hard places. The power of God being revealed in the cross of Christ means that we don't have to clean ourselves up, achieve a status, or be winning at life in order for God to be at work in our lives. Remember that the crucified Jesus is the hero of the story. If we are called to follow Jesus and live according to his ways, then the cross has to be a central part of our lives as well. So when things aren't going how we'd like them to go, it doesn't mean that God is not at work. When we are uncomfortable or even suffering, this is not an indication that God is absent. When it looks like others are winning according to the ways of the world, it doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. The cross reminds us that God's wisdom, God's power is radically different than that. God's power is revealed in the situations that look like somebody else is in control. From the outside, the cross, again, declares Rome is in charge. But to those who know, it's like, oh, this is God's victory. So God doesn't tell us that we need to get ourselves into better situations, improve ourselves, and then God will start investing in our lives. But rather, God is already at work. And in all God's power, in all God's glory, right in the middle of the most difficult situations. To remember that the crucified Jesus is the hero of the story. The ultimate victory comes from a man who was nailed to a cross, hung up for all to see, and to be shamed and humiliated as he slowly died. That was victory. It's in that place of suffering that place of brokenness, that place where everything seems to have gone wrong. As these corrupted powers of the world put the blameless, sinless Jesus on a cross and killed him, it's there that God meets us. It's there that the power of God is revealed. The cross on the back wall here at the church, it's not a decoration. It's there to remind us weekly. We run into that cross every week. It's there as a reminder that God is at work in the broken, humble, messy places in our lives. May we never desire a faith that doesn't go through the cross of Jesus. And may we never elevate the cross to something that it wasn't. The cross continues to be the place where God's power is revealed and work is revealed. But it's also a place where the wisdom of the world is made to look foolish. The cross is how God heals and how God saves. And the amazing thing is that we can meet God there. 
As we've done the last few weeks, uh, I, I want to uh, wrap up the message with a corporate time of prayer. We've been praying a prayer of confession. Um, the words will be on the screen, and we'll just say this out loud together. Um, and then at the end of the prayer of confession, I will uh, pronounce God's mercy on us. Uh, because the scriptures tell us that when we confess and seek mercy, God is merciful, right? Um, so do we have those slides? I couldn't remember. I want to make sure I put them in there. Um, let's uh, read this scripture, or not scripture, this prayer together. Uh, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful, as I said, to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. It's in the name of that crucified Jesus that our sins are forgiven. I'm going to invite the worship team to come, and I'm going to uh, pray a prayer as we conclude this part of our service. God of our life, your son invites us to see the world through your eyes, and often we find ourselves disoriented. Father, you bless the poor, you bless the meek, you bless the pure in heart. You turn our world and its values upside down. We have signed on to follow your son, but at times this strange territory. It doesn't look anything like the life we had been taught to yearn for, to work for, or to believe that will bring happiness. Yet you know the despair that so many of our people who fear what's to come in the future. You hear the cries of those who have traded their souls in an attempt to achieve power or to obtain money and now have emptiness as a friend. Father, you see those who are caught in lives that lead to weariness and anxiety, stress, burnout, and emptiness. So Father, set us at Jesus' feet. Teach us to learn how to judge our lives differently. Awaken in us that hunger and thirst for you that will lead us to your will and to your peace. Open our eyes to see your unexpected blessings. Open our hearts to welcome you when you come to us in strange and unexpected ways. Father, then make us into a community of blessedness that beckons this neighborhood, our communities, into your joy and into your peace. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus who blesses us with your living presence and fills our lives with your life-changing truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.